Welcome to another episode of Replaying Favorites. It's the show where two friends show each other movies. I'm Chris Kelly. I'm Brie Callahan. And this week we have a third friend. Everyone, welcome Vita James. Hi, Vita. Hi. For some reason, I was expecting like applause to sound, but there's just three of us. Oh, no, no. People at home are roaring. They've lost their minds. Like, to be honest, when I have a podcast I listen to and there's a guest, I'm always like, ugh, who's this annoying person? Where are my friends? So, <laughs> And today it's you. Today's me. So for everyone who thinks that's annoying, I understand your feelings. Oh, everyone, don't be annoyed by Vita. I've known Vita for like 25 years, practically. God, that's crazy. Like so long. Yeah. We met it when you were a freshman in high school. Yep. Mm-hmm. And now we're, neither of us is a freshman in high school anymore. Let's just put it that way. No. <laughs> so, Vita, I've known you for a long time, but our listeners might not. So please introduce yourself. Yeah, um, I'm Vita James. I am a fiction writer and a social worker. <laughs> um, and what am I up to right now? I am working on my own podcast, which is called Three Word Title. It's a podcast where I read contemporary short stories by writers of color. Um, and I also have a short story coming out, which will be read on the podcast. So you should check it out. So what we wanted to do is this is our 15th episode. And we decided we'd shake up the premise a little bit and invite on a special guest to introduce their very own movie for us to watch that is new to us. Yeah. So speaking of high school, this movie came out when we were all in high school. It's 1996's Basquiat, directed and written by Julian Schnabel. I'll just leave it at that. What do y'all know about this movie? So I have seen this movie once, but like in antiquity, and I have almost no recollection of it. I, <laughs> okay. I actually think I probably watched it because you liked it the first time also. Uh, and I just recall nothing about it since then. But I bet it's great. Brie, what about you? Literally nothing. I assume it is based on the life of the artist? Yes. Okay. But I don't even know how much of that is true. Like if it's really based on his <laughs> life, it's unclear. I had a weird job in college where I was sort of a paid older sister for a 13-year-old girl and I just sort of drove her around and then she would do her homework and I would have to like chill and watch basic cable for like hours at a time. And I feel like this movie was like in frequent rotation, but I thought it was like kind of like high stakes sexual thriller. So my spidey sense is like all over this and I have absolutely no idea what we're about to watch. Wow. Well, I think... I'm going for a treat. <laughs> I loved this movie when I was in high school. I must have been 15, I think, when I first... 14? Oh, God, 96? Yeah. Uh, when I first started seeing this movie, and I haven't seen it probably in 20 years. Maybe oh, wow. when I was in college, I saw it a couple times. But I remember all these like clips of dialogue, and I remember all the actors. But that's kind of it. Like I don't know if I'm going to look back at this movie and be like, was this good? And I was trying to figure out what it was that I even liked about it as a teenager. And I'm like, oh, it's totally the aesthetic because it's like supposed to be an artsy movie. I like how the first guest that we have on brings like an actual like art film to the podcast. <laughs> we just watched a Christmas Prince for fuck's sake. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we injected some new blood because Lord knows what we would have come up with on our own. <laughs> I don't know if you good Ben was one of your movies, right? Yeah, that was, that's true. Yeah. I mean, it's Aaron Sorkin. It's not like. Yeah, I don't know if that counts as art. Uh, so, Vita, thank you for bringing this movie. We're all going to go watch it, and we'll come back after a little drum roll and hear what we all thought about it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, can't wait to talk with you about it.
And we're back from break. Hopefully you all watched Basquiat. We certainly did. So the cast is a lot of people. We've got uh, Jeffrey Wright as Basquiat, Michael Wincott as Rene Ricard, Benicio Del Toro as Benny Dalmau, Claire Forlani as Gina Cardinelli, who's, I didn't even know how to last name in this, <laughs> David Bowie as Andy Warhol, Dennis Hopper as Bruno Bischoffberger, uh, Gary Oldman as Albert Milo, Christopher Walken as an interviewer, Willem Dafoe as an electrician, Parker Posey as uh, an art dealer, uh, Courtney Love is in there, Tatum O'Neill. Uh, there's a lot of people. Oh, and I noticed a brief appearance by Sam Rockwell beating up Jean-Michel Basquiat. Oh my God, that was Sam Rockwell? Guys, I'm not going to lie. That was the highlight of the film for me. I was like, it's Sam Rockwell. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's one of his first films. Oh, That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Vita James. What would you like to tell us about this film? So many things. Written and directed by Julian Schnabel. Um, Julian Schnabel is a painter. I don't know if this was apparent to you guys, but he's Gary Oldman in the movie. Yeah, I read that after. Julian Schnabel's paintings are all over this movie, and none of Basquiat's paintings are in the movie because his estate would not release them for the film. Hmm. So they had to recreate all of these images. Basquiat was Julian Schnabel's first film. It was the first commercial film about a painter made by a painter. It made about $3 million domestic, and it had really kind of mixed reviews. Like, some people felt like, I think with reason, that the movie's more about Schnabel than it is about Basquiat. A couple of just, like, funny little things. This was Jeffrey Wright's, like, big breakout role, but originally Lenny Kravitz was approached, and he declined. Oh, interesting. Which he now regrets, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> Bowie was a collector of Basquiat's work, and he actually knew Andy Warhol in life, in real life. And he borrowed Warhol's glasses, jacket, and wig from the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh for the part. So to start things off, Vita James, I want to ask you, because you talked about this before the break, you were worried about how you would view this movie as an adult looking back on your teenage fave. How was the revisit? Um, It's funny. I definitely have like still like emotional attachment to it. Though now as an adult, I can't tell if it's an emotional attachment to the film or to Basquiat as a figure, because my understanding of him has changed. But I definitely like teared up right at the beginning when I see like him as a boy with his mom. I think in a lot of ways, because I just know about a period of time in his life. And then the end, like I fucking cried. I was like, oh, God, he dies. It's so sad. And I'm like, is that because the movie was well done? Or is that because I like, you know, feel some type of way about Basquiat? Um, I do think, though, like watching it, there's definitely no plot. Um, there's like no women in it, which is like a major, yeah, I think to the detriment of the film, you know, in Basquiat's life, he had many female friends who were collaborators, people that he lived with. And that all those women, I think, just got collapsed into Gina, which kind of sucks. Mm. I think technically it's interesting, you know, like the music is still beautiful. I think the cinematography is interesting. The sets are all interesting. I do think they managed to capture like a certain type of 80s like grittiness paired with luxury. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the performances are all great. In terms of writing, I do think that the film really misses like the heart of who this person was. Like his artwork was really political and that's more or less absent from the movie. So I think if I saw it today, I'd be like mad. So Vita, can you tell us a little bit about Basquiat? Like, especially since this sounds like this is an artist that's close to your heart. So like, I think as we discuss the film, it might help to like kind of have a couple of those highlights that you were drawing upon when you were thinking about this rewatch. I think I'll just start with his youth. He was like a brilliant child. He started to read and write when he was four. He started making art when he was four. He was fluent in English, Spanish, and French. His mom was Puerto Rican from New York. His dad is Haitian. He actually was from like a pretty wealthy family. He um, went to like St. Anne's private school. I don't know if you know what that is. It's like a really bougie private school in Brooklyn Heights. He um, 
got into a really bad car accident when he was really young and his mom gave him a gift of Grey's Anatomy to like look at while he was recovering. And that really influenced his artwork Mm. from his childhood. She was always taking him to museums, enrolling him in like different artistic, you know, memberships. And I think compared to the movie, like none of that's present, right? It's like, he is like Athena popping out of Zeus's head as a brilliant, like a gutter artist. And then he became famous pretty quickly. In his teen years, he had some like rough and tumble times. He was homeless. He like ran away from home a bunch of times in his early 20s. When the movie starts to take place, he was like homeless occasionally. He was dealing drugs. He was like DJing in clubs. I think he was like 20 or or, like maybe it was 1979. He did like a outdoor public art show in Times Square with all of these underground artists. And that's what got him attention. Um, His graffiti work was actually not just him. Samo was him and his friend who is mm-hmm. kind of like Benny in the movie, but is this guy named Al Diaz. He's just like not in the movie. But the two of them are Samo, which stands for same old shit. Mm-hmm. And they got attention for their graffiti and it was like written up in the village voice. So like he was like a hustler. He was like trying to make it as an artist. He like did the Whitney Biennial when he was 22. Like he was super young when he started blowing up, which obviously I think impacted his like mental health and his longevity. He was queer. That's not, not really present in the movie either. I don't think he came out as bisexual, but he dated men and women. And he was doing drugs from a really young age, heroin and cocaine. He did so much cocaine, he like blew a hole through his septum. But by the end of his life, in the late 80s, he formed this relationship with Andy Warhol that was really close. And they had a gallery show together where it was like Warhol versus Basquiat. And the gallery show was like a disaster. It was very, like, not well received. And people were like, Basquiat's done. His career's over. And then Andy Warhol died. And he became extremely depressed and was like using heroin. And he tried to get off. He was like him and his, his girlfriend at the time was like getting him on methadone and taking him to clinics and stuff. But then he relapsed and overdosed when he was 27. So he was like a really brilliant person. I don't know if that's really clear. And his artwork was very political. A lot of themes around black bodies, around Mm. police, policing, public housing, like that was really present in his work. Crowns and halos are themes that he came back to. And that was because he wanted to elevate black figures like Charlie Parker into saints. That's really good context to have having just seen the movie, because I feel like things in the movie that were there but not really talked about or not really explained now map a little more neatly onto those facts, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Right when they're, you know, we're looking at title screens and he and his mom are walking down into the museum, Mm -hmm. I just felt emotional because I knew, even though it's not in the movie, that that was like a burgeoning artist who's like being exposed to all these things and being supported by someone who then he loses basically, right? Because she's so unwell. And then to think also that he's that he's going to die at a young age. I don't know if it's manipulative on the director's part, but I definitely was like, ah. Oh. You know, they talk about him, that his dad's an accountant in the movie. And then also you talked about him like being middle class, which they go to see Guernica, which is at the Reina Sofia in Madrid. So like, yeah, that's <laughs> like, he wasn't just like. He wasn't just like <laughs> some kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. It is funny that you talked about that opening scene making you cry, though, because I similarly felt like very emotional in that moment, even without knowing why. I think there is something about the music and the really heavy blue lighting. And you can Mm -hmm. tell or it is implied, at least, that it's a child with his mother. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, like, I got the basics of it, even without knowing all of that underneath. And I think that scene, I like, I started the movie being like, oh my God, this is so deeply emotional. And like, I will say that very few things after that actually got me to an emotional space, but that like, mm-hmm. right, that first scene really set me up for some like, oh, this is going to impact me. 
Right. Well, and and also it opens with Fairy Tale of New York, which is a Pogue song um, sung by Shane McGowan. And then the female singer who you don't actually hear on it is Kirstie McCall. And it's this song about two people who come, I believe, from Ireland and they're just like really impressed with New York. And then they like both get on drugs and like fall out of love and like hate each other. And it's just about like the collapse mm. of this fairy tale life that they thought they were going to have. So like it was a really excellent choice for me because like it's a song that I genuinely really love. And it also, I think, kind of maps on to like what we see happen to Basquiat as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I mentioned this last time we spoke, but the soundtrack is super good. You can't find mm-hmm. it anywhere. It's like only on CD. But there's like such great stuff in there, like Iggy Pop, um, like Grandmaster Flash. I mean, like, Alleluia is the last song. Like, they did a really good job kind of like hitting these like artistic indie subcultural notes, I think, mm-hmm. with the music. And like a solid three stone songs. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> As well. Yeah. They, by the time we got to the third stone song, I was like, okay, let's keep it moving, though this is a really great soundtrack. <laughs> it was also notable that after Warhol dies, they use a David Bowie song. Uh-huh. Oh, they did. I was like, guys, we just saw him playing someone else. This is not helping suspend disbelief. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, funny. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of Bowie, what did you guys think of his performance? Oh, it was my favorite part. Oh, okay. Me too. I get that they're like trying to do some stuff here, but you promised me David Bowie first and we're like 40 minutes in and where the (laughs) fuck is David Bowie? It's a lot to put David Bowie first and then like hide the Chekhov's David Bowie for 40 minutes of the film. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I love Bowie's performance. I feel like he presents Andy Warhol in a different way than we're normally seeing him as like pretentious and full of shit. Mm. Like his Andy Warhol is very tender. And I Mm -hmm. think their relationship is the central relationship of the movie. I was watching it wondering, I was I don't know, obviously, what Andy Warhol was like privately. So if I hadn't known that David Bowie knew Warhol personally, I would be tempted to believe that the performance was like bordering on mockery just because mm-hmm. like it would not be out of place to like cut him out of this movie and paste him into an SNL sketch at <laughs> For times. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, I do think his performance is comedic. Like, Warhol was ridiculous, you know? Yeah. But the movie also seems to kind of be mocking all artists, really, Mm. except for Basquiat. I mean, even to the point that uh, Willem Dafoe's character is like, yeah, I'm a sculptor as well, but I'm also an electrician. Like, you know, there's just kind of a... I think there's a real attempt to, like, put Basquiat on a pedestal. I don't know that that necessarily works, but I think part of that is like presenting him as like an actual raw artistic talent, whereas everyone else is like a bit pretentious. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I said, I don't know that that exactly succeeds because like my read on it as like not particularly an art person is I also found Basquiat pretentious. But to be honest, I like David Bowie a lot. I think he's a really underrated actor. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think he understood the wink and the nod, I think. Mm -hmm. But also... The reason I also am accepting of it is because I know the director and the writer knew Bowie, knew Warhol as well and was friends mm. with him. So it's like, he's a little, he's silly. He's ridiculous. He is like so affected the way that he presents himself. But it doesn't feel to me that much like he's making fun of Warhol. It feels more like the whole environment. Like w- there's that scene where they're in the restaurant, right? When Basket has his big show and he goes to Mr. Cho's restaurant and mm. there all the fancy artists are at one table and then like the loser artists are at the other mm-hmm. table. Mm-hmm. And Warhol has next to him, whoever this guy is, Henry, who has like, mm-hmm. I think his clothes in 1996 were supposed to be so ludicrous over the top, right? He's got like the tiny glasses. They're like neon green. He's got like mm-hmm. a white suit with like a bow tie. And now I'm like, whatever. Yeah, like, 20, <laughs> like 2020 looks the fashion is moving. And it's like, that's fine. 
Yeah. Um, my favorite of Bowie's lines, and I think this is maybe as close as the movie gets to making fun of Warhol, is when he and Basquiat are walking together and Basquiat like has all these sores all over his face because he's doing so many drugs. And Andy Warhol's like, I really gotta get you in to see my dermatologist. Like, not the problem, <laughs> sir. <laughs> not the problem. Like, I guess that was one of the problems that I had with the film is that like the actual relationships, it wasn't clear that any of them actually liked, trusted, or wanted to spend any time with each other, or if they mm. were all just using each other. And I wasn't sure if I was supposed to take away that like this is how the art world in New York at the time was, that it was kind of like dog eat dog and like, you know, you form alliances, but not necessarily like real relationships. But then mm -hmm. I felt like with the Warhol relationship, they were trying to send something else. But like, it didn't seem like these two people actually like knew each other very well or were able to like connect on a deep level. I had a struggle in that it didn't seem like anyone had an inner life or that the script was concerned with their inner life. Like the script is really concerned with the art that everyone produces. Mm -hmm. And we get a lot of depictions of the art they produce and the art shows that they put up. But a biopic should be exploring the inner life that led to that art. And there's just not a lot of that. Like, I think the crux of that is when we get to like an hour in and Christopher Walken starts asking all these really interesting questions about Basquiat. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why has the past hour not been answers to these questions? Right. It is weird how Christopher Walken is like this expositionary like <laughs> yeah. device where he's like, you mm. should also understand the following about Basquiat. We're going to have this all in the conversation. Yeah. And it even like gave us a shortcut into like the art world was really racist towards him. Here's an example. And I'm like, well, why don't we see we see a couple of instances. But that was like a huge part of why he was on so many drugs was because he was like facing horrible racism all the time. Yeah. A question I asked myself watching it was like, what would this movie be like if it was written and directed by a black person? Mm. Like, what would the nuances be that aren't really there? Like, there aren't really any other black people in it there's the, the limo driver and then there's like what one other person of color Benito del Toro his friend mm -hmm. who he like leaves behind basically mm -hmm. um, and that's it and I don't think that's true to Basquiat's life there's no one that Basquiat can really like speak with on any level about like the experience that he's having as a black political artist that like none of the rest of these people really seem to be. And yeah, the scene with Christopher Walken is so strange because I always just think of things from like the communications and like journalism background that I come from, which is just like, imagine walking into that interview and just being like, now I'm going to ask you about race and class and all the other things. Like, it's just such a list of hostile questions. And, and like racial slurs in them as yeah, well. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and he's like, oh, sorry, I must have misread that racial slur. Like, this was actually just like a, like something else entirely. It was a very strange scene that just kind of like brought the movie to a little bit of a strange halt where it was like, uh, we need to talk about these issues. So like, let's just get them out. I think that part of it, too, is that Basquiat doesn't talk for so much of the movie. He's mm -hmm. a weirdly silent protagonist. Even in that scene, he doesn't really answer the questions at any length. Like, he's a cipher for so much of this movie, and he's also visibly high for so much of the movie. Yeah, I think that's, like, m probably my major problem with the movie is, like, despite Jeffrey Wright's portrayal, because Basquiat did, like, have a funny way of talking. I mean, the guy was fluent in three languages. You know, he started to read and write when he was four. He's been a painter for a long time. And so he would, I think, know how to speak about his art and about like the complexities a little bit better than they present. Mm -hmm. And earlier, Chris, you said that um, the movie is more about art. But to mm -hmm. me, it's actually more about the art scene. 
Like, I don't mm-hmm. even think Basquiat's art is really in it. Like, it's there. And, like, Julian Schnabel's paintings are all over this movie, and they're given a lot of attention, right? Like, when he goes to Parker Posey's gallery and she's kind of giving him, like, the cold shoulder, like, those are Julian Schnabel's real paintings all around there. Hmm. And then he goes to Julian Schnabel's house, and they look at a painting that he made for Basquiat, and it's, like, given mm-hmm. all this time. And I understand that they're limited because the estate didn't give them art so to make fake ones, mm-hmm. but I feel like they could have put more into, like, his process like I said, as a non-art person myself, it felt very much like how I actually view art, which is like, I don't understand the meaning behind this. And it felt like no one in the movie understood the meaning behind Basquiat's work either. You don't ever get a sense of like Basquiat taking things from his life and putting them into his art. To your point about, you know, Athena just being sprung from the head of Zeus, that's how the art also feels is that he Mm -hmm. just like, oh, once he had that basement, he was just making the art. And like, it didn't seem like they came from a place of deep meaning. They seemed like something Mm -hmm. that he was just like throwing together. And I don't think that is true. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a few scenes of him painting. Mm -hmm. And it's not interesting to watch him make it if we don't know why he's making it. Like, I know he painted and I know what I know what painting looks like. And we didn't glean anything from seeing the physical act, you know? Right. It's just like a montage of his genius. Yeah. It also made it seem like he was high a lot of the time when he right. was painting, which maybe he was. I don't know. But like, that just made it seem like he was just a drug-addled guy who was throwing some paint on canvases and then people wanted to snap them up for millions of dollars. And like that felt a little disrespectful. I don't, from what I, from the limited amount that I know of his work, I don't think that that was the case. I mean, in his life, he made 600 paintings and he made 1500 drawings. Like he was Mm. extremely prolific. So like, Mm -hmm. obviously, like what they said about him is that he is painting and drawing all the time. He was always like with a sketch pad, like constantly making art. I think that the art world at the time didn't understand his work. People were attracted to his art because they had this story around him of being like a diamond in the rough or whatever. And this movie just replicates that. But I think Mm -hmm. that was a frustration of his when he was alive. Like people don't understand what I'm doing. And then you know, now we like reinforce that with this movie. There are even times when people will specifically address him and then they just cut to a silent reaction shot. Mm -hmm. And I have to wonder if it was just that like he had things to say that they were like, oh no, it's more interesting if he's just this phantom that we never truly understand. And so they like cut some of his dialogue to make him uh, mysterious and unknowable. There's also, and maybe this was just the audio on my device, there are a couple of cases where the soundtrack is actually a little too loud. Like there's mm. the scene where he grabs Gina and she's like, get off of me. And then he like whispers something in her ear. And on my end, it was just like, like I have no idea what he said. And then she just smiled and cried. And I was like, well, that's about par for, for this scene. Let's keep it moving. He was saying some weird stuff. It was like, the sun is jealous of the moon because you can look at it. The moon is jealous of the sun because it can warm you. It was like something he said. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, that scene with Gina, of all the things that we could have shown, it was weird that I'm like, oh, the one time we get like a real clear sense of him taking an action, it's of him being like abusive to this woman. Right, like destroying her shit. <laughs> yeah! He's so passive about his own art. And then I'm like, oh, he finally takes an action. And I like, it's of despicable thing yeah i mean it's so weird because this person didn't exist (laughs) so i don't know like maybe there are some girlfriends that had situations like this that they just put together and they collapse into one person but it is like a weird choice to have their romantic relationship be a plot in the movie 
the main plot for most the of the main it. plot and it's so boring like i don't care about this domestic drama at all at all i mean she had to have known what she was getting into because the first time we meet her he is pouring syrup all over the table and i gotta tell you it is at that moment which was like five minutes in that i was like i'm old and uncool now because i am like you little twit what are you doing someone's got to clean that up and she's just like blandly looking at him as he like destroys her workplace and then he's like do you want to go out and she's like yeah why not i was like girl he's not gonna take you with him and like he (laughs) sucks get out of here he does not consider you an artist you gotta go and then when he destroyed her dress i was like you owe that girl a dress i don't care about your dumb art (laughs) (laughs) she needs a dress to see her parents she's on heroin she also looked way too good to be on heroin. They did not do enough to fuck her up. Benicio Del Toro and Jeffrey Wright both look wrecked. And they're like, we can't mess up her winged liner. Like, right. She has to be beautiful the whole time. Even though she's like sleeping under newspapers, like in her own apartment. <laughs> okay. Because she looked so good and she always had a number of shiny ni- 90s dresses to wear, I didn't even realize that the implication was supposed to be that she was on drugs. Because when she wakes him up from that uh, overdose that he has, which is like the only time I've seen randomly pounding on a chest actually work in a movie um <laughs> she like looks down and sees the heroin needle and seems surprised so like i didn't even get yeah. that like she was supposed to be an addict as well i mean i just assume that she had to be because why else would you date somebody who's so like bonkers or friends are coming over and doing drugs while you're like off to work like you have to be on drugs i mean even the the way that they like met each other and started dating made no sense i feel like a lot of stuff was cut out like all the context of like why would you be attracted to this person? I assume he's like 19 or 20 when that scene takes place, right? He's like putting maple syrup all over the table. He's like literally a, like a kid. And she is she older than him? And then she's like, cool, this guy's handsome. Like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. All I know is that I was that angry line cook all day. Like, I would have gone straight over the bar of that man as well. Like, get the fuck out of here. I'm like, what are you doing? Goodbye. Yeah, no, she needed to get out. She she seemed like she had a lot going on. She had a job. She could have gone anywhere else. Also, Benicio del Toro also tries to make out with her in the in the hallway for some reason, which like double whammy, never go back there again. Like, <laughs> like this guy and his friend are creeps and she's still just like, well, I guess we'll keep sleeping under newspapers together. Like, she had to go back there again. It was her fucking apartment. Her apartment. He brought all of his scuzzbag friends over <laughs> to her place. Yeah. Ugh. And like... <laughs> they sort of establish only through the fact that there's paintings all around that some of that art is hers. Right. But it wasn't until she said that that I realized that she was also a painter. At the end, they paint it as like a nice thing. She's like, well, I learned that I wasn't a good painter. And he's like, thanks. I'm glad I could help. <laughs> Women can't be artists. OK, we figured it out. There's a lot of things about the movie that. I don't know if this is just because, like, the writer and director was, like, so involved in that life that, like, there are things he doesn't feel the need to explain. But, like, for instance, when they go to her apartment for the first time, I was like, oh, does Basquiat, like, have his own apartment that he doesn't use because he prefers to sleep in a cardboard box for his art? Because, like, it wasn't clear that that was her apartment. And then there were no pillows. But then she had a second change of sheets which was good, like, because they were different sheets the next time. And I was like, are these two different apartments where they're sleeping on the floor? And then the scene where he paints the dress, he leaves her in bed to go fuck up her shit. And then when he wakes her up to show her his, like, finger painting all over her stuff, she's asleep on the floor under newspaper. So, like, what is happening here those different days? There are probably pieces that make sense if you were, like, part of this world. But if you're, like, 
if you were not there during the 80s that like I think they just like didn't do a great job of like explaining some like basic setups which this is his first film so it could also be that it's interesting to see how a lot of the actors are really good I think specifically because it's not their first film like David Bowie actually has a fair amount of film experience by this point. You can see him like working pretty hard. The like Christopher Walken and Gary Oldman and Dennis Hopper. Even Benicio Del Toro has like a couple of movies under his belt by this time. They're really carrying the film in a way that it probably shouldn't have been able to have been carried if they didn't have the cast they had. I mean, I will say like every time someone comes in, I'm like, oh, Courtney Love is here. Oh, there's Parker Posey. She's hilarious. Christopher Walken. I feel like we are possibly ignoring the Claire Falani in the room, which is that it seems to have been a requirement of many mid-90s movies that she be the female lead. And <laughs> bless her heart. I mean, she's in Mallrats. She's in Meet Joe Black. Like, she just turns oh, up over was. and over again. And she looks like the like platonic ideal of a girlfriend. But she is so flat. Okay, she- I'm going to take that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell that back because I can tell by Chris's face it was too far. We're allowed to disagree on Claire Forlani's performance. I know, but I'm not trying to be mean to Claire Forlani. Like, she's perfectly fine, but she just doesn't have a ton of range as an actor. And it makes it really hard when you have something that's a script like this, where it's Mm. kind of, there's a lot of things that are implied or a lot of subtext. And I just don't think that she delivers that particularly well. And so, like, it's pretty hard to relate to Gina other than just, like, why have you chosen this life? A specific Claire Forlani and Courtney Love scene that I found more hilarious than the movie intended is when she's wearing Courtney Love's pink scarf (laughs) and Courtney Courtney Love just walks over to her and is like, that's mine. That is the extent of the dialogue. Technically, it passes the Bechdel test. (laughs) Like, there's so many things that would be happening to you in that moment of like, I am at an event (laughs) My boyfriend has become famous. There's hugely famous rich people here. Someone he cheated on me with is also at this event and it has been revealed to me at the event. Like you would have so much going on and Mm. it's just like, what? Yeah. (laughs) Again, I think this might be one of the limitations of the actor into whose hands (laughs) this is placed. I'm just putting it out there. (laughs) This is actually the saddest part and how I know this was written by a man and a woman had nothing to do with looking over this script ever. Even if you were just depressed enough about your relationship that you accepted the scarf that smelled like another woman, it's the wearing it to the gallery that is just the saddest, most pathetic thing ever. Because you know in the moment when Courtney Love takes the scarf from her that she didn't wear it as like a fuck you to him. She genuinely wore it to be like, Okay, like, I guess maybe you did get me this scarf. I'm gonna wear the scarf you gave me to your big opening. It is also indicative of this being written by a man that Claire Forlani says literally nothing when this happens. Says like, nothing about it. You can, bl- you can blame the actor if you want, but she was given no scripted lines. Like, Julian Schnabel could not have imagined that Claire Forlani would have a thought at all about this thing having happened. <laughs> Wouldn't she, like, leave in a huff? Like, there's so many options. Well, so many people were leaving that fucking gallery opening in a huff. There was no room to get out the door. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I also think, like, just this is a a side thing, but the whole time I'm like, why is Claire Forlani the only person wearing contemporary clothes in this, like, historical movie? Like, it's the 80s. It's the early 80s. And she's like, I'm wearing, like, a twin set cardigan and, like, square heeled shoes. I'm like, this is from the Delia's catalog. Yes. (laughs) What the fuck? Her 
outfits are exclusively from the mid-90s. Her hair. I'm like, nobody has big curly hair. No one has a perm in this movie. I'm sorry, that's not realistic. I know. There's no bangs in this movie. (laughs) Not realistic. I mean, I think that the Claire Forlani styling goes back to the director just needing her to be a beautiful woman. And so he's Mm -hmm. like, what do I think a beautiful woman is in this exact contemporary moment? Like, he doesn't see her as a character. He sees her as a beautiful woman who can sometimes be sad. I do think it's funny also, though, that, like, Basquiat dated Madonna in real life and they reference in the movie, but then the girl that you see is Courtney Love. (laughs) (laughs) But I was looking for that. I'm like, do any women talk to each other in this movie? Like, are there any women even in this movie? We've got... Two gallery owners who were like oppositional forces who were both trash. We've got Claire Forlani, like the besieged girlfriend. And then we have Courtney Love. That's it, right? Uh, the, the millionaire wife who thinks the green on the painting is wrong. I love that scene. Yeah. And her husband just completely overrides her decision. She's like, I hate that. And I don't want it in my house. And he's like, let's buy it. <laughs> that scene to me is so funny. They come in. They're so dumb. Those two. He's like, why don't I make it shit brown for you? Her husband's like, no one makes one of my wife but me. (laughs) Like, ridiculous. And then he, like, puts on his sunglasses. It's like his transformation into, like, an art douche. He's like, get a decorator. I don't even, these aren't even done yet. Glasses walking out of the room. And it's, like, so obnoxious. (laughs) I was like, perfect. That, to me, was, like, probably the most pitch-perfect thing. That scene in the basement is one of the times when Basquiat actually shows personality. Like, he's Mm -hmm. reacting. He's defending his work. He's pissed that these like gentrifying assholes are coming in and taking this painting that they don't understand because a lot of this movie is about Basquiat being totally taken advantage of like Mm -hmm. he's just sort of drifting between all of these forces it was so fulfilling to see him react in that moment to like I am creating something that is important to me as opposed to just like following the current I mean I wonder if part of it is like Julian Schnabel doesn't want to show him as ambitious because it would look bad but it's like he was. And that is sort of present when he ditches Renee and Nina for the other table. You know, when he's ditching Claire Forlani, it's like, oh, is he just seduced by this glitterati of the art world? Or is he like trying to get famous, you know, because Benicio del Toro has that whole basketball monologue in the beginning where it's like the like foreshadowing of the whole movie, right? He's like, when you get famous, you have to keep making the same shit over and over again. Like, and he's like, cool, that sounds great. But the passivity, I think, undercuts all of that of like, how does fame corrupt or whatever? How does money corrupt? I think that's like probably the thesis of the movie that doesn't really come to fruition. In terms of you describing him as someone who really hustled his art and had opinions about it, like there are not a lot of artists that would have marched up to Andy Warhol and been like, you need to buy my shit. It's only $10. And then I think he walks off with like more money than he was supposed to get. I think he takes $100. Yeah. And he's like, you can have them all. <laughs> but I think he does leave the rest of the art, despite the fact that they only wanted two of them. But he doesn't ever seem to have any opinions. And I think the whole idea of him like going with the flow is that it doesn't actually read that way, or at least it didn't to me. It just read as he like, didn't actually care about anyone in his life. Not because he was like a bad guy, but because he literally like, didn't care. He almost had sort of like a sociopathic read. And I wasn't sure if we were supposed to take that as a connection to his mother's mental illness. Like it's not clear to me if he had mental illness, um, or if he just had addiction issues, or possibly an interweaving of those two things. But he just kind of read as like, that he wasn't even making active choices about leaving his friends behind. He was just doing the next thing and wasn't thinking twice about it. Yeah. And it's tough, too, because, like, one of the first covenants he breaks is with Renee, who is 
kind of not even kind he's really skeezy and i have to say michael wincott's performance is fucking great so good it's the best performance i love it electric he is just greasy and horrible but like compelling in every possible way but when basquiat double crosses him or whatever it also doesn't necessarily feel unearned because i'm like well this guy seems real gross like i don't necessarily think you should stick around with him you know like and they don't they don't form a friendship like i think renee is pretty calculated about glomming on to basquiat he doesn't seem like someone who has his best interests at heart so i wasn't clear or like was i supposed to think that it was a betrayal was i supposed to think that it was a smart move like it, the read on that was emotionally more neutral than it needed to be. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like Renee discovered you, and now you're leaving him behind. It's like, yeah, but he didn't actually discover him in real life. Like he wrote that art forum article, which propelled him into f- fame, but he already was getting attention before that. And like Renee sucks. He's like gross. But everybody else sucks too. Like, oh, he didn't hang out with Anina, the gallery owner, even though she like put money in his pocket. He's going now for whatever Parker Posey, but like. That lady sucked. She said his work was from the gutter. Like, Mm -hmm. it doesn't, there isn't, it's not coherent. Yeah, I guess my big takeaway from this movie is like, I didn't want to spend time with anyone that I met in this movie with the possible exception of Renee, but in like a supervised environment. Like, (laughs) (laughs) but like, I, I didn't even like Basquiat at the end. Like, I feel bad because like, I actually liked Jeffrey Wright's performance and I think I liked the glimpses of the real person that I saw in there. But like I said, he's just so neutral and aloof that it was really hard Mm. to like get a foothold into any of these characters and to really care what happened to them. I mean, he seemed really happy in that last moment in the in the Jeep, which I was like, how did Benicio Del Toro get that like nice ride? But anyway, that makes no sense. I was like, did he get rich, Benny? Yeah, I was like, where did he get that nice car? How did he find him? Like, I guess I was really taken out of the movie because I just always had a lot of questions about what was happening in the scene and what the motivation was behind what was happening. If the movie had given me a little bit more of that, I think it would have been easier to like get into. The questions thing popped up for me too. Again, going back to the Christopher Walken scene, like he very pointedly asks... If you're from a middle class background, why are you sleeping in a cardboard box? And I'm like, oh, that's a great question. And it isn't answered. Like, right. they, And they like they make a point of bringing his dad back. Like his dad showed up to his art show and he doesn't seem surprised or upset or he doesn't seem happy either. He is again. He's like he is very flat. He has no reaction. But like there's like just enough there to give you the question. But there's never enough there where you can even start guessing at an answer Mm -hmm. right i mean like if they had shown us him fighting with his dad his mom is institutionalized he's running away from home as a teenager like a funny fact he um dropped out of high school and then re-enrolled in like a transfer school like a really a pretty legit transfer school called city s high school and he got expelled for pieing the principal (laughs) like with a pie Yo, the pie. Like, pie the principal and got expelled. Like, wouldn't you want to see that in a movie? Yeah. Like, yes. If you had seen, like, young teenage Basquiat running away from home, sleeping in Washington Square Park, pieing the principal, getting expelled, I think, and then seeing him become an artist, you'd be, like, maybe more on his side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And having seen some of his art in, like, real life, it's very compelling. Mm-hmm. I guess what I was really struggling with is, that, like, this person liked him enough to make an entire movie about him. But we don't see any of those pieces of, like, what made this man compelling? 
And I wish that they had just been able to tell more of that story because I think it was probably pretty interesting. Yeah, I think like thinking about the way they wrote him or the way that he was edited together, the way that Jeffrey Wright portrayed him is like, he's like blunted all the time by his heroin use. And like, I think that's the way they're portraying it is he's just like, you know, swimming through life because he's like so high, but he also was like a mischievous person and like very ambitious. And so that's like not present at all. Like none of the joy of making art is there. None of the like funniness, you know, when he's like, it's just, yeah, it's very strange. You know, it's interesting because there's so much in this movie about how one gets represented as a black artist. As we keep sort of diving into the the themes that we're missing from this movie, I kind of can't stop thinking about the 2008 or something movie Ray about Ray Charles, which was also just like, did you know that Ray Charles did heroin all of the time? And it was right. like just about that. And mm. it was also a really unsatisfying movie because, I mean, I can barely even remember it because it was so strange. But um, yeah, the, there was just nothing like fun or interesting about this person. It was just like, here's a black artist who did a lot of drugs. And I just wonder what the motivations behind that are. I mean, I guess I don't wonder. <laughs> yeah. There's like definitely some kind of like mythology of like the drug addicted genius, you know, like Queen's Gambit or whatever. It's like you do drugs and you can see clearly what you need to do to be a genius. And that's like the tragic mentally ill artist is also like such a trope, right? Like, you know, Van Gogh cutting his ear off or whatever. But when you actually know someone, <laughs> it's weird to just like refer to that. Though the depiction of their relationship is really sh like I didn't get a sense watching the scene between them that the two of them were friends. Like they sit down over spaghetti and Gary Oldman is like, did you know that painting is important? And Basquiat's <laughs> like, huh? And like barely says anything. And he's like, because let me tell you, I own some important paintings. Again, like, I don't know if we're making fun of this person. And I guess I think less so now because it is, in fact, the filmmaker inserting himself into the movie. So he probably thinks that that was a very smart thing to say. Also a very <laughs> handsome, handsome portrayal, let me tell you. <laughs> Elevated. <laughs> also, his parents are really his parents in the movie. Oh, really? Those That's two cute. hilarious older people who were like, will you take our picture, Andy? Like, those are actually Julian Chanel's parents. That's oh, cute. that's great. I did like the two of them. Yeah, they were funny. Like some real human beings. Yeah, they, because they actually <laughs> behaved like human beings. I think that's like why they were so interesting. I mean, they don't even show that he like toured Europe. What? Yeah. It made it seem like he never left New York. He never even made it to Pittsburgh. He never leaves the Lower East Side. Like, no, he like goes all over the world. He goes to Africa. Like he does all this stuff. And then it's like, whatever. This movie made me mad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was watching it being like, I'm not learning a lot about Basquiat. And I'm not sure why it didn't click that, like, there is so much more to learn. But, like, every new fact, I'm like, not even a hint. You don't want to insert a sentence. Like, show him getting back from a trip if you don't have the budget to go on the trip. Jesus. I mean, you want to get mad. The postcards that he sells to Andy Warhol, he made with his female artist friend. It was a collaboration, <sighs> but she's just erased. It's just no. him. I know. It's, like, so shitty. So shocked to hear it. Okay, I have a question. This is for Chris. Did this movie change your opinion on Benicio Del Toro? <laughs> <laughs> I had a similar question. <laughs> I want to be clear that I don't dislike Benicio Del Toro. I just don't have a positive reaction to him. And watching this, I continued to feel neither negatively nor positively toward him. I could imagine many other actors having done what he did and would have been just as happy if they had. That's so funny. 
I think he is killing this part. <laughs> He's so fucking weird. Vita, this is what it feels like when Chris hates an actor that you like. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> what do you mean? He's so weird. He's so scummy. Yeah, he was fine. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like now my perception of Benicio del Toro has been colored by Chris's perception because I was just like, yeah, he was fine. <laughs> We've already been fairly but, mean to several people on this on this episode. So like, let's, oh, this episode, we're like ripping this movie to shreds. <laughs> I feel bad. Yeah. Why? I don't know, because it's fine for me to do it to Chris, but like, you're a guest. It's like, if you came to my house, I wouldn't be like, what a terrible sweatshirt you've got on. Like, that's just not how the world works. Yeah, but this is a movie I liked when I was 14. I know. <laughs> like, whatever. I, I guess my fear was that you were going to come and be like, and it held up. And I was going to be like, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I still had emotional resonance with sure. it. Just in the beginning and the end, really. Like when he's telling the story of the boy hitting his head, the crown against yeah. the bars and mm-hmm. making the beautiful sound, I was like tearing up because I was like, oh, Julian Schnabel wrote something really beautiful about oppression and art. I also feel like there was one more step to that story that I kind of wish that they had taken, which is that like, so the medieval villagers didn't seem to know or care where the sound came from and they just loved it. But like, I think there was something that at least I was kind of getting in the feeling of Basquiat was that he felt kind of trapped and that like mm-hmm. that he was this black artist that everyone wanted a piece of and that he like couldn't be free and couldn't like be who he wanted to be. So I thought that that story was going to end with like that the villagers know that there is a boy up there banging his head against mm-hmm. the walls and is can like never get out. But they like the music so much that they let him stay there and don't help him. Oh, it's like so dark. <laughs> well, yeah. That's kind of how my brain works. Sometimes the sometimes there's quirky, better endings to the movies that I create, but sometimes they're just a little bit darker. I mean, I think that's there in the story, but the delivery of it is like innocent. Yeah. You know what I mean? The way yeah. that Jeffrey Wright tells the story is like, and that's, isn't that crazy? The story my mom told me instead mm-hmm. of being like, and I'm stuck in this cage and I can't get out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Vita, I'm going to throw to you for the final thoughts here because you are the one who is kind enough to bring us this film. What are you taking away from having replayed this favorite? I think that the movie does not hold up at all, right, to what my esteem was when I was 13 and 14. But I don't know that I would know about Basquiat if I hadn't seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I, as an adult, have now gone to see like exhibits of his and that I have followed his career right retrospectively and understand like what a powerful painter he was and how he was making art about topics that are still charged today, like police brutality and public housing and, you know, his struggle with mental illness, like all that stuff is still present today. And so I don't have any regrets about my love for this movie. I don't have any regrets about making you to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to go look at more basket paintings, to be honest. I will say having watched it, like I was really pleased about like how much discussion we have about Basquiat himself. And I've also just sort of done some research on him and like his his career is really fascinating and his work is very beautiful and fascinating. And like, I'm much more likely to, as with you, but as a much older person, like gonna be more into his career based on this film. But I don't think it's something I'd watch again just because all of the characters were kind of ciphers and it doesn't feel like from having watched it or from our discussion that is maybe a particularly rich look at Basquiat's actual life. Yeah, that was my takeaway as well, is that at the end of this movie, three other suggested movies about (laughs) Basquiat popped up. And I was like, oh, yeah, I definitely want to catch one of those documentaries. Like, I want to know more about him because I knew 
pretty much as much about him at the start as I did at the end. <laughs> Which is to say nothing. <laughs> it was very surface level. And so it was. I was like, well, it was nice to have like the suggested reading for the future. And I will probably go watch at least one of those other films and probably not this one again. Yeah. Let's all go watch a Basquiat documentary. Just before we wrap up, uh, you should know that we are a podcast, so we would love you to rate, like, and subscribe. Uh, we are on Twitter at Replaying Faves. We are on Instagram at Replaying Favorites. Vita James, do you want to push any social medias or uh, other stuff other than your podcast three-word title? Uh, yeah, you can find three-word title on Twitter, supposedly, when this comes out. Maybe it'll still exist. Um, or you can follow me on Twitter, which is Vida Selena, V-I-D-A-C-E-L-I-N-A. And from there, you can find the podcast when it comes out. Oh, it was such a delight having you. Thank you for bringing us this film. I was thrilled to get to talk to you about it and just to talk to you in general. Thanks for having me. Yeah, more than the film. I was just so pleased to have you here. Thank you for replaying this favorite with us. Yeah. All right. Well, Vita, thank you for joining us. And uh, I'm sure I'll talk to you again soon privately, but our listeners are saying goodbye to you now, so so am I. Goodbye. Bye. Okay, Vita is off the hook now, but you still have to watch another movie with me. I'm so worried. Okay. <laughs> I promise this is not a revenge selection. <laughs> I'm picking a movie that I think you've actually already seen once before and that I suspect you might enjoy or at least not actively hate. Next week, we'll be watching To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. Oh, that's a great suggestion. I have not seen it in, oh my God, like maybe 20 years, a very long time. But I remember loving it and I love everyone who's in it. Yeah, A, we're going back to that gay shit, which you know I love. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the 90s, <laughs> but but they're sort of synonymous. Well, B, we are going back to the 90s. That was B. So you anticipated <laughs> accurately. Excellent. Love it. I don't want to talk too much more about it right now because I think that I want to see what you notice when you rewatch it, because that's the point of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. We have defined the terms of the podcast just one more time for everyone who's listening. I guess I'm interested to see the interplay between Priscilla and this movie because they're both sort of like the big gay road trip. And I've seen Priscilla a lot of times, much more recently, but I think I would have seen Tu Wong Fu first before I watched Priscilla a bunch of times in a row. So I'm sort of interested to see if like they influence each other or even if they, the two movies know about each other. I don't know. My understanding is they were developed independently, but certainly oh, yeah, yeah. there are uh, comparisons to be had. I think it is interesting what each of them gets right and wrong about drag. I won't say more till after we've actually watched it, but I think that that is an accurate anticipation of what the discussion might be. Yeah, I guess that's really interesting because like, I literally don't remember what the plot of Tu Wong Fu is at all. So I mean, like, I know that there's like a convertible Cadillac instead of a bus. But like, I don't know if they are drag performers or like, I don't know anything. I cannot remember the the thrust of the movie at all, if you will. Well, uh, you'll remember some thrusting after you watch it. That's for damn sure. Uh <laughs> Felt like that might go there. Yeah, sorry. I You put it down. I had to pick it up. I think that lest we go any further down that road, it's best to cut it off here and we'll see everyone next week for Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything. Bye. Bye.